This is not a static industry. And so the technology supporting it needs to continue to evolve along with it. And there's a little bit of a running to catch up process, I think, that happens because we move faster than anything else in fertility. And so the technology is always catching up. And sometimes we lead and sometimes we're letting the practice lead. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on the show, I am joined by Nicole Kazanowicz. Nicole is the Vice President of Artisan Medical Solutions. She joined the company at the end of 2016 as the Director of BizDev. During her time at Artisan, she's worked extensively with practices all over the United States, helping them optimize workflows, train users in every department of the practice and getting them out of paper or prior systems. She's had the pleasure of working on strong relationships with companies and partnerships with standouts in the industry, such as Embryo Options, EngageMD, Progenesis, Giraffes, most recently iGenomics. She's worked intimately with clients to help them release new features and new versions to support uh, fertility practices at large. And this is Nicole's fifth and most exciting year in the fertility industry. Nicole Kazanowicz, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you, Griffin. I'm excited to chat with you today. Is it really the most exciting year or do you just say that for a good intro? I definitely think this is the most exciting year. It's been a major year of both professional and personal growth in this industry. So very exciting year for us. There's a lot of stuff happening in the field. A lot of people want to talk about consolidation just because we see it so frequently. I think a lot of people like it just as a water cooler topic. I still do not see the Godzilla. I have talked about consolidation on the show very frequently. We had David Sable on a few weeks ago talking about new opportunities and maybe pitfalls and downsides of consolidation. And there very likely certainly are some, but I still think that there's more opportunity for the independent practice, let's say, for anyone than there has ever been because of technology. What do you think? I actually really agree with you. And we continue to, on a weekly basis, hear about new practices opening all over the country. And they're not necessarily a part of networks. Usually it's one or two doc shops popping up in areas everywhere. And so I, I do agree with you. I think, but we're seeing both. We are definitely seeing these big consolidations and networks growing and growing and acquiring but simultaneously, I get calls on a weekly basis from practices planning to open their doors in an independent fashion. So I think you're right. I do agree. How do you see people being able to adapt? And I think of an, an EMR as, as one particular tool, though there are various. To me, it seems sometimes you might be at an advantage opening a practice in 2019 simply because whatever the folks used for payroll in 1996 
was definitely a lot more cumbersome and expensive than using Gusto at $5 a head, right? Or EMRs that might be built on other platforms or phone systems that might have literally had to have been systems installed in practices before. How are you seeing, like, just as somebody starting from 2019, 2020, being able to leverage the low cost of barrier of technology, whether it's your EMR specifically or any technology? I think that it's definitely become something that practitioners are thinking of first. And that's one of the interesting things that I'm seeing as we get these phone calls from people planning to open in 2019 or 2020. They're looking for a space. So that's really where it begins. They've decided to go out on their own. They're looking for a space. They're looking at buildings. They're trying to identify the right market to be in. And then we usually get the call, even before they have a lease. And I think that technology is becoming such an integral part of the practice. And I'm amazed at how people have so quickly identified this and this shift that we're no longer just another vendor. It's becoming the part where they say from the start, I need to figure out how we're setting up the business and I need to identify how our data is going to be managed and what aspects of the practice are going to flow through the system and how is that going to define our workflow and how are we going to then decide how to staff appropriately around that. And so I I think that these doctors, both more established and the younger ones starting on their own, are all understanding that technology is going to play a massive role in their practice. And they're putting it at the forefront of the decision-making when opening a practice. And we are in that first phase of the budget rather than later down the line of, oh, yeah, we also need an EMR. And so that I think I've seen as a shift from the beginning time when I was at Artisan to today. Because that's a big point of friction normally, isn't it? Is finding an EMR, a software, a strategic partner, any kind of solution to fit into your existing workflow, right? But if you could create your workflow around a certain solution so that it fits more seamlessly, to me, that seems like such an advantage that would be such a headache for someone else that that doesn't have that advantage of a blank slate. We see it with people that are starting their own practices. Sometimes they'll come to me and say, you know, should I come back to you in a year or is there anything you can do for me right now? It's like, well, of course, we're not going to do the same strategy that we would with an established practice. But if we could just like start with a blank slate, like down to your brand, down to, I love it when people don't have a name yet. If people don't even have a name and I can help them with that, that's like, wow, we can really get you so far ahead of positioning. So how do you help people do that? If you're help, do you, do you find that you're doing that? Like helping people create a workflow or do people typically have that already set when they're coming to you? We see it both ways. I would say some of the practices we've dealt with who I call are the the baby practices, the ones that are starting off and they put an artisan in in the beginning. They do obviously have workflows they're comfortable with, right? We've never worked with a practitioner who's just started out of school. These are people who have worked in other practices. They understand how they want to practice medicine. However, they are open 
to what can the system do? How can I leverage it? How can I leverage it to lower my staffing costs? And so we do see a lot of that. And they want to understand how does the system work? What can it do? What can I eliminate in my initial startup costs by implementing a system that can do a lot? We also see the other side of people who've been on paper or in existing systems that are what they consider to be insufficient or just not meeting their needs anymore. And they're looking for another option and a new way. But I would say strongly that most of our clients come with a somewhat established workflow or at least something that they've been comfortable with, whether it is optimized or not, it's what they've done for 10, 20, 30 years. And so the flexibility of a system to meet that workflow, yet to guide them along that path and provide areas where we believe you could be saving 30 minutes every single IVF cycle by doing it this way instead, which over the course of a month or a year is massive cost savings and staff time savings. Those are the areas where we like to point out, hey, you could do it this way and really leverage what this technology is bringing to optimize your practice flow and make you more efficient because that's really why you're spending the dollars to have a new EMR. Why buy a tool and not use it for everything it can do? And that's, we really coax the practices to see it that way as much as we can while still allowing them to feel like we're not changing their workflow. Because I will tell you that is the last thing any practice wants is someone coming in and telling them what to do. Where do you draw that line? Because I know that sometimes we're a pain in the ass for people uh, in terms of just like the, the initial. Uh, that was also why I put that all that stuff up front because when a new client gets through the permissions, getting us the, the Facebook and getting us the Google ads, and Google, once we get through that stuff, we get through that smoothly. We know things are, are going to be good. That's why I put all of the pain in the neck stuff up front. And I tell them, like, this is going to be a pain in the neck, tracking all of this stuff down. It's not the fun, cool, creative part of marketing. We've got to do some of this really boring, cumbersome stuff up front. And then, you know, we make decisions together about processes and strategies. And there are times where we have to to be realistic with who the client is and and be accommodating of them. But there are other times where it's just a fundamentally flawed process that we would be setting ourselves up for failure just by engaging with it. And I need to have that conversation with the client. How do you have that conversation of of when okay, our software could do this to be more accommodating to you versus this really just is a busted part of this workflow. So I, like you, try and set expectations up front. I have what I call the 90% rule. And we do this even in the sales cycle process. I feel like we do a disadvantage to practices by not telling them up front that this is going to be a challenge and it's going to be hard. There's going to be staff who resist. We've been at installs where people up and quit in the middle of an install. And that's not artisan. That's just change is the scariest and the hardest thing for everyone. And so my team and myself, we always take an approach of handholding. We probably cater to our clients more than we should at some times. But this is also going to be one of the hardest probably six months to a year, their practice endures and we have to hold them through it to get them through it because we know on the other side of that, things get better and it does. And everybody says it, 
but getting through that hump is really hard. And so I would say it's like ballet. It's a dance. It's always giving and taking and knowing in those moments when to push and when to give in and really trying to find what works for each practice, which, you know, arguably I've been accused that that isn't scalable, but I also think that that's what's led us to our success is this is not an out of the box process. I don't think it should be. I think it is disrespectful to not acknowledge that every practice is going to be different and going to have different needs. And I think that's why we have continued to do what we do and built the reputation we have is because we are the people who listen and we care and we cater. And I think in our industry, that is what people want today. And I think the service aspect of what we do and what you do is what keeps people happy to the best of our abilities. But our 90, my 90%, which I mentioned, and then I realized I didn't say anything, is we start off saying best case scenario with any EMR, you're going to have 90% satisfaction. This is never going to be a perfect solution. It is an off-the-rack dress. It is not a custom-made shoe. And we will do our best to make it fit you like a glove, but it never will. And there will be things that don't always match, but we're shooting for 90% on the good day. And to set expectations that this is going to be everything is going to set you up to fail, in my opinion, because it is still technology, it is still a solution, and it is designed as a shared resource. And a shared resource is not going to perfectly fit every single practice across America. I think even those super large fertility groups that have in-house EMRs would agree with that. They would still say the same thing. They built it for themselves and it still doesn't fit perfectly. It's still technology and technology, you know, has its limitations even when it feels limitless. And we continue to change how we practice. This is not a static industry. And so the technology supporting it needs to continue to evolve along with it. And there's a little bit of a running to catch up process, I think, that happens because we move faster than anything else in fertility. And so the technology is always catching up and sometimes we lead and sometimes we're letting the practice lead. Yeah, there's a give and take. And though I would say is conventional wisdom for running a business in a 2019, 2020, 2030 world. I was at a mastermind meeting of other digital agency owners and one of the other agency owners said something that really resonated with me, which is the deep adoption of almost any software is the solution to a lot of our problems. And he's so right about that to the extent that re- even recently I've had our project manager and I told her, I just want you spending an hour a day in Asana, which is our project management software, and in Harvest, our time tracking software. And I want you to come back and show us all of the different things that we could be doing, should be doing. I just want you to spend an hour each day this week. And those five hours paid for themselves so many times over. We said, whoa, we could be doing this. We could be attaching things this way. We can be doing it right from our email. We can add a task and assign it over this many times. We can, we can make them integrate this way. It was so valuable in that small exercise. And I think it's just so true that whatever software we're using, 
there is an onus on us to learn it to the best of our abilities and to be able to adopt it as best as we can because it can solve so much of our time. That's what it's designed to do. But what you're describing is unfortunately something that very few practices in America can do, which is give their staff the time to take to just fiddle and learn. And, you know, they're carving out moments in the day for training, which is great and necessary. But that time for a user of the system to really just sit for an hour a day and self-teach and play, not in a more classroom traditional setting, is really hard because these are busy practices and they can't push pause and they can't stop cash flow and they can't shut down and we never ask them to. And so I believe when people talk about adoption problems of EMRs, and I've read about this in other industries, not just ours, where there is sort of a drop-off. People learn enough to survive, but they don't always learn enough to optimize. You know, there's so many features they could be using, but honestly, we, the biggest resource that nobody has enough of that's the most valuable is of course time. And in these practices and for their employees showing up for their eight hours or whatever their time frame is, no one has that carved hour of the day to say, Hey, here's your new tool. Can you just spend your time in play? There's patience and there's demands and there's their everyday job. And so I think that is probably the hardest struggle that I have yet to identify in our company the solution to help. And I I hope that we get there because I think that greater adoption and understanding of what the tools can do really is what takes it to the next level. But there is the limit of time. And if you have a solution, please whisper it in my ear next time you see me. Um, Podcast episode, isn't it? The systemic topic that comes up recurringly on the show. Just had an interview for this show with Marion Kreiner from Shady Grove. And we, we were talking about this issue of time and learn by doing. And the issue, you know, the, the solution is that this type of learning needs to be built into the practice and there needs to be time reserved for other things than the current day-to-day demands because... It seems like a big time investment to give a few people a few hours to play around on EMR. But when you think about the return on that time investment over the course of, let's say you stay with that EMR three years, five years, seven years, 12 years. It's a marriage, Griffin. It's a marriage. Your EMR, I mean, and people do get divorced. However, most people enter their EMR contract hoping that this is forever. They don't want to have to switch providers. They don't want to have to move their data. This is not a three or five year. This is a long-term relationship through the life of a person. People still do though. Like I said, people get divorced. But <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So does that say 50% of practices will switch their EMRs? And- I, I- I think maybe they're doing a better <laughs> in marriage, but I no one goes into it hoping to switch in three to five. Everybody is planning the long term, which is why I think it is our duty as EMR companies to continue to evolve with the time, because that is probably the only reason people look to leave. The, the two reasons I would say would be, A, just 
less than satisfactory service. And two would be that the system becomes insufficient over time. It doesn't evolve with technology. It doesn't provide new features for, let's say, embryo donation, third parties, all of the things that maybe we didn't do as much of 10, 15 years ago, we're doing a lot of today. And those systems need to keep up. And it's it's a challenge. And it requires more and more money to go into development and more and more time spent with these practices, really understanding what their true needs are. And all of that is expensive and exhausting, but it's a requirement to keep competitive in the space. Insufficient over time. That is the exact same reason why practices or any group needs to be spending time to invest in software development. Yes of any kind because insufficient over time is the product of not reserving time, energy, and focus for development, improvement, innovation, technological literacy, upkeep. That is the byproduct of that. So it's costly upfront to have a couple hours here for training. It is also the price of being relevant and adaptable over short and long periods. Well, and having staff that knows how to use a tool, right? Because there's no long-term free EMR. There are systems that I think will give you an upfront break or a few months for free. But this is an investment for any practice and any company. And I think to optimize that, making sure there is the appropriate time for the staff to absorb what's being thrown at them is, to your point going to make this investment worthwhile over the long run. And change but again, change is hard and I fully appreciate that. And and that is something as a team at Artisan, we talk about constantly because it is that pervasive problem of buy-in, acceptance, and then change. So I encourage practices to not make this as a unilateral decision, although it does slow down our sales cycle, I will be honest. The more buy-in you get in the beginning, the better it goes. So if you have one person come in and say, yep, I love Artisan, let's put it in. I know that's going to be a rocky road because the lab didn't look at it and the billers didn't look at it and the clinical team hasn't seen it and the physicians haven't asked their questions. And honestly, as long as a road as it takes to get that buy-in, it smooths the path for what comes next. And so that... I'd rather have happy clients than happy prospects. And it's not going to set the rest of my team up for success, right? Because my training team is then going to go in there and say, nobody wanted to change. I'm hearing that this wasn't what they wanted. And then what? You have two sets of non-decision makers who don't know how to sort this out when the decision makers in my team and the decision makers in the practice are not on the ground floor. And that's why... I think we also need to consider that decision makers shouldn't always be the people who write the check and receive the check. It needs to be the people in the practice who are going to touch this every single day. And I do see that happening in more and more practices where they're including more and more people in this conversation, which I think is fantastic. But every single person in these practices is going to have to touch the system. They're going to stare at it every day. It's got to be something that makes them comfortable, that makes them feel important and that makes them feel like their job is both pleasing and productive and that they're contributing to the whole. And if they find that these processes do not meet their needs, 
I think it's only going to create complications down the road. And so getting over those humps early on really improves our process and, and makes all things possible later on. Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person before you put out an RFP or look for services, before you get your house in order, because by definition, this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world, and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned, and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, Practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. We do the same exact thing in, to the point where when people come and they'll say, can't you just do a social media campaign for us? It's like the amount of time that it takes me just to educate you of why that's a bad idea <laughs> is, is enough for me to charge for. Yeah. So in other words, people can come to us and say, yeah, we want to do social media when it's like, well, are all the physicians comfortable with that? Is there someone in practice that can do that can be the thumbs inside the practice and they're going to feel like it's another task that's assigned to them can they do video can they edit things can they just take pictures will the nurses and the billing staff even get in a photo or will they fight you tooth and nail before we ever tell somebody yeah we're going to do this much this many posts for you or we're going to do this much in facebook or instagram advertising we need to know how much can you even be a part of that. And that and that's just one tiny segment of marketing, which is one segment of business development, which is one segment of running a business. We always start with as many people as we can up front. So we tell people in the beginning, look, if it's a physician-owned practice, we're not just going to talk to the practice admin. We're going to talk to the doctor as well, the practice admin. If there's a clinic liaison, we want her or him there too. If it's a larger practice, we might want like these particular officers or executives or the right. physicians that sit on this committee because we want as many people as we can in the beginning to flush out the goal of where we're going, and then we can move down to one point of contact after that. But when 
in the past when we didn't have that discipline, I would give in to people saying, well, can't you just do this? And I'd say, all right, I guess we can do that. Then inevitably, four months in, in comes some marketing liaison that I never met before or a physician who is a partner but previously didn't give a crap about marketing and all of a sudden has a, a real big opinion. And it would just blow things up. And so now we do this from the beginning. And a lot of times it does deter prospects because they're like, I don't want to get my team together and think about this. I just want you to give us a price for what a website costs. So sometimes we lose prospects, but we have good, healthy relationships for long periods of time. And I would rather have that because we went through the crappy stuff in the beginning. Yeah, it's it's entirely necessary. And I think there is something very attractive about moving from prospect to client. But because these are long-term relationships, it just is never as successful. And it makes the road very bumpy. And we've done it both ways. And I can tell you, the more buy-in we have, the better it goes. And I think it's interesting to watch how these things unfold and continue to evolve. And we find the most resistance when getting buy-in. So I would say on average... Well, it's just it's it's been really unique. We've had some experiences where so I have a practice in mind that was a, a two physician practice owned by one of the physicians. They've been on paper for 30 years and they the physician made the unilateral decision and he did not want to do things our traditional way in any way, shape or form. Right. He didn't want to have everybody's buy in. We did a few demos with more of the staff. And people were like, yep, looks good. Okay. And then usually our training methodology is about one to two months, depending on the size of the practice of offsite training, where we do GTMs and things like that. And he basically told me he didn't want to do that. He wanted to learn it himself. And then he wanted us to do our in-person install that we always do. And that is when the staff would be exposed and that it would be total immersion. And I can tell you in this practice, it was very, very, very successful but only because of the leadership style in that practice. We would never have done that anywhere else because in his practice, it was like, you do it this way or you don't work here anymore. And I've never seen that happen anywhere, but I can tell you in under four months, they were 95% off paper. And they are one of the most successfully using practices of our system. And they have adopted more and more features more quickly But that's a really rare case. And we rarely see things happen that way. And a lot of people in the practice push back. And I can say, I believe that why we get people to buy in is usually how we treat them and we listen. And my team has a lot of diverse experience. Some have been nurses, some have been practice managers. We recently added an embryologist. These are people who've walked in the same shoes. And I think the relatability of that helps because I, I'm not in that same role. I can't say, you know, when I was a nurse and I used artisan, I I can't relate in the same way. And so I think it's really important for the practice to understand that it does get better. I feel like we're one of those campaigns, like it does get better, like bear with us and learn it and you're going to get there. And then it's really special when we see those aha moments in the practice where the nurses come to us and they're like, 
oh my gosh, it's so easy to make an IVF calendar. And oh my, I love messaging with the patients and it makes it so simple and the patients are really happy. And then everything shifts. But resistance wise, it depends on the practice. Sometimes I, I think we've seen it in every department, honestly. Sometimes it's the physician who just doesn't feel the need to change. Sometimes it's... Let me deal with the Debbies because when the Debbies is my name for established office personnel uh-huh. who, in, in my mind, they smoke too many cigarettes and, <laughs> and they're just... But I, that's my sort of persona for grumpy, established office personnel who... Eh, is just not pleased with their job or the different tasks and any type of change or improvement is another thing that they really disdain and that disdain ripples throughout the rest of the practice. So even when you're as empathetic as you can be and you're really trying to make their job better, I imagine that at some point you just run into the Debbies. We do. We do. do. Deal with them. So we try to throw different personalities on our team at them and see who sticks. (laughs) Uh, We'll we'll go through. I have one person who is, he's a real Xanax for most people. And so it's good. And so (laughs) I, we pull out that card when we need to. And I think the biggest thing is if we can get someone to identify why they don't want to change and verbalize it, we can then make them feel heard and then say, okay, we get that. So again, the empathy strategy really is our strongest strategy. And I do understand that person continues to be difficult, but usually we can wear them down. I will say there's been a few who, and we use the term Eeyores in our company. We don't use the term. <laughs> we call them the Eeyores. And the Eeyores sometimes just want to be Eeyores. And sometimes I think we have to say, that's who that person is. We know what it's going to be like interacting with them. We know what they're bringing to the table. But I think a good 70 to 80% of the time, we can win them over. And that's why, you know, we joke that our tagline at Artisan is a little EMR and a lot of therapy. And that's mostly what we do. Sometimes we do EMR, but we mostly just talk to people. I swear half of my job is therapy, especially the account management side of it. That really is such, I think it is a big part of any consulting operation, any sales process, any customer service is helping people walk through their own heads sometimes walk out of their own heads sometimes and really trying to understand where they're coming from so that you can help them arrive at the solution. Well, and we, we're in an advantage point in my mind because the number one complaint aside from outdated technology, which people complain about, but a lot of people live with is they just feel like they've been treated like crap by their other EMR companies, whether They pick up the phone and they're on hold for 45 minutes and they can't talk to someone or they send an email that never gets answered or they never talk to the same person or they're only speaking to people who are not in the United States. And it's opened up this like lovely little space for us to just be entirely different. And that's what we did. And 
I mean, it's the platinum rule that I ask everyone to practice in our company, which is we don't treat people the way we want to be treated. We treat people the way they want to be treated. And that's what we really try and do. And nobody's perfect. There are days where I'm certain that we fail people and it sits heavy with me and with all of our team, we all take things too personally, but we always show up to do our best and to do our best for our clients and to try and make their lives easier. And I think as long as we're coming in that spirit, we will continue to be successful. And how, what was the phrase we used? Was it less functional over time? Insufficient. Uh, insufficient. Insufficient. And I actually, that is a word that was used recently by someone who I'm speaking with, who has described their EMR as the insufficient medical system. That's his terminology. And feeling as though, I think that happened with time. As their practice grew to be as large as it is today, and their needs have evolved, the system became insufficient. I don't think when they started with it, it was. And I I think that is, you know, that parable sitting out there for every tech company saying, like, watch out because it's coming up behind you. Never get too comfortable. Every company, period. Every, every government organization, yeah. every volunteer group, every yeah. family, right. every entity is at the threat of being insufficient over time. This is my talk at last year's ARM conference because I grew up in the city of Buffalo, which had been a booming city and then very was not. I'm a Catholic and there's, you know, lots of Catholic churches that used to be jam-packed that now have eight people in them and I'm the only one whose hair is totally gray. So, and it doesn't, most of that stuff does not happen with one boom. It just happens over Time and happens some, some more. So what do you do to, as a company to make sure that that's not you in 30 years because you are subject or, or seven years? Seven or years. Or years. It yeah. could be tomorrow. I don't get comfortable, right? We were, when I joined Artisan, we were, we were in a position where I would introduce myself and people had no idea who we were, right? They were like, oh, we've never heard of you before. And today I get phone calls from people who say everybody's saying your name, which is just like the most wonderful thing someone can say to you. And that has been done through just sheer force of will by all of the people on my team. And I am fortunate enough that I get to be the face, but there's a lot of other people pushing that boulder up this hill together. And we do it every day. And part of that, I think, has made us so sensitive to the, to the fact that you can slide like that. You can lose it like that. And we don't get cocky and we don't get comfortable and we don't get complacent. And I keep looking in that rearview mirror to see who's coming up behind us because we were the nobodies and we... Now people know our name, but that doesn't mean that's forever. And we could lose it just as quickly as we got it. And so to me, we have to keep listening to our clients. We have to keep building as much as it would be lovely to say, okay, we've built and built and built. And now we're going to take a moment and breathe. We can't. 
And that's, you know, we had a development meeting a few nights ago, and I think there was a hope that like maybe we could round out some development 2019 and call it a day and our developers could breathe and we could just do like data mapping for new clients. And, and I was like, no, like there's so many people who want to integrate and there's so many new projects and there's new ideas and patient experience and we have to keep rolling and we're going to roll harder and faster and we need to keep hiring more developers and we need to keep moving down a path so we don't lose the momentum we built because it is up for the taking and someone else could do it the way we did it. Heck, and, heck yeah. and, and if we get comfortable, we will end up like everybody else. And so we just, I'd say don't, we just don't sit down. Like we just keep standing and we keep pushing that boulder and we keep listening to our clients and we keep listening to what makes people unhappy in their other systems and you stay alive and you be grateful and thankful to the people like you who give us a platform to speak and thankful to people like Dr. Belsos, who, you know, wants us to speak at Midwest and just keep showing up. I think that's our plan. <laughs> that is such a philosophy to live by. And that was a very lovely compliment that that person or those people paid you. I was just recently paid a very similar one of you know five years ago nobody knew who I was as brand new. It was been here at the same time as you have for the most part. And now a lot of people know who I am and who my company is and but it's like don't matter. Don't matter. You're only as good as your last at bat. Somebody could come out with a better podcast tomorrow. Somebody could come out with a bigger agency or anything tomorrow. Yeah. I'm so not sad. Oh, that's pretty good. We, we've got this many clients and we've got really effective work and really great results and people are happy. That's good. It's like, that's just the beginning. Like, yeah. like there is no time to rest right now. And the practice owners that I have conversations with that I see that are in the most trouble are those where I think you're just not paranoid enough for me, man. <laughs> Whenever I hear somebody be a little too cavalier with with what they talk about their competitors and, and very I will that is a criticism that I have very often of practice owners is that they've just got these blinders on of who they are versus what the other practice is and they'll they'll say that, well they do things like that they, they have lousy success rates and and like well. Yeah, they're probably pretty similar in a lot of different capacities. They might be really different in others, but certainly not enough to rest one's laurels on. And I think those are the people that I, those people that are comfortable. And if you're a fertility practice owner in a small market where there's no competition, now I'm specifically talking to you because I think that a lot of these big markets have been saturated. And I think that a lot of these larger groups are going to think, you know what? There's not a ton of cycles in Omaha, Nebraska. I don't know who practices in Omaha, so I'm using it as an example. But no offense to anyone. <laughs> let's go do 200 more in Omaha and let's go do 300 more in Kansas City. And I, I really think that that's where the next round of heat is going to come from. I think a lot of people, especially in our, let's call it like markets 
markets one through five have always been really super competitive, right? New York, Chicago, LA, they've always been super competitive. I think we've seen the heat, we've seen the heat turn up in Atlanta and Houston and Dallas and Charlotte and Orlando in the last decade. I think the next round where people are, are going to start to feel competition pressure is in these small markets. What do you see? That's interesting because I, I'm not certain. I'm not certain because I know, especially because I, I live in the greater Southern California area, if you can't tell by my accent, <laughs> there's always new practices opening. And I don't think we've seen the same level of consolidation in the exact same way that we're seeing it in other places that you're describing. And so I'm sort of like, when is it going to hit LA? Like, when are we next? And maybe everyone's afraid of the earthquake and they're just holding off. And then after the earthquake, they'll go in and put a big practice together. But I don't know, really. I think it's interesting, but these practices keep popping up. And I, I do agree, though, that as one through five continue to consolidate I think it's the middle of the country where we're going to see more and more happening. And I think the needs are changing. And I think part of the really interesting thing happening is seeing practices do new stuff, right? Practice different ways, practices that aren't just doing it the way we see things in general. And I think you you know some of the examples of this, people who are looking to offer to the 1%, I'm sorry, to the 99 versus the one, people who are looking to bring costs way, way down, to give alternative options to what's always been, and to or just to offer something in a completely different vein. You know, we have a client who is really strictly catering to same-sex male reproduction. And I think offering these other types of options within the industry that's always catered to other types of reproduction is very, very smart. And I think it's very relevant right now because we're only going to see more of that. And I think those are going to be the new markets that are going to open is things that not everybody is specializing in and giving that feel, which is why I don't think that these network consolidations is going to wipe out the options for boutique or private practices, because I think there will always be people who want a different kind of service too. I think the opportunity for boutique practices is better than it's ever been. We're talking with one group. I think that they have five or six people that run their whole practice and they do a good amount of cycles for one person and just the ways to reach especially if you're in a large market it's like yeah you might really want i mean the, the larger private equity backed groups need huge volume but if you're a single practitioner especially in a large market I mean, well, if you got 400 patients a year and good conversion rates then you're doing 220 250 retrievals a year right that's sustainable the, and your access of reaching patients is and potential patients is unbelievably more open than it was even a decade ago. So I see tons of opportunity. I also see far more disruption going. And another reason why I'm not as concerned about consolidation as, as everybody else, I, I am, and I am focused on it. I talk about it a lot. I study it. But I still have much more of an eye on the other boxing glove that's coming out of Silicon Valley that we haven't even seen yet because there's a lot of startups that are starting to like grab little pieces of market share here and there. They're pivoting a ton. I think a lot of them are wasting through VC money. 
but one of them is going to figure something out. And to it, I think there's a whole other disruption that, yeah, we might be the, the, the motel that's worried about the Marriott or the Hilton Inn coming in and building a bigger, more cost-effective hotel. I'm worried exactly. about Airbnb. What do you see happening from Silicon Valley or what are a couple of just potential areas for disruption that we're probably still in the infancy of or maybe haven't even tasted yet? I think really the two areas that I see that are going to change would be obviously patients who are receiving fertility benefits through work. I think that's going to change and it's going to change the way we approach this. I think it might make our decision-making about reproductive health more proactive rather than reactive. And I think there will be more people you know, in their 20s and not just egg freezing, but from a more of a holistic approach, you know, if it had been a benefit when I was in my 20s, would I have started, you know, a benefit that was in my insurance plan considering looking and forecasting for my own personal reproductive health? Yes. And if that had been standard of care, which I think one day it will be, I think that is a way that we're going to see this medicine shift from more of this reactive elective medicine to something that is comprehensive care. I think that's one area. And the other I think that's going to change is I don't entirely know what kind body does, but I know that they're trying to angle in a very different way. And I'm I'm looking forward to learning more about them and what they're bringing to the table. But I think they're they might be Airbnb and I or at least they have the flavors of what Airbnb might be in this industry of really approaching it differently. And I, I'm excited to see what else is coming to the table other than just this brick and mortar approach to what we've done. Um, I think genetics is going to play a huge role as it always does in our industry and empowering people with their own information about who they are and what they are and what that means for their fertility and their health overall. And I think we need to continue to educate other aspects outside of our industry about fertility health. I can tell you, I don't think every OBGYN is telling their female patients enough about what they need to know in the beginning. And, you know, when you're in your twenties and your thirties, I think there could be more guidance to lead us to where we need to be to be prepared for our optimal fertility health. And I, I don't think that that's a hundred percent there yet. And so maybe there's opportunities to bring more of that into the mix. What are, what are you? Uh, I, I think that there's an entire, an entirely different interface for patient acquisition possible. In other words, I think we're too slow. And even in an agency like mine that helps people with websites and with social media, I can meet, have helped to a really large degree, but I think there's an entirely available position for a platform to come in and sort of be the distribution point in the same way that Flightline did for flights, in the same way that Airbnb did for different housing units. And I don't know if that's Fertility IQ. So Jake, if you're listening, my assistant has emailed you to be on the podcast before. I'm asking you in front of everybody. I want to hear your take. But I think that there is a opportunity for a platform to attract and acquire patients and then essentially sell them back to the provider. And there are apps that have done this in small <laughs> scales that are tasting this, but I don't think anybody's knocked that 
over. I think it's just an inevitability. The user experience that clinics offer right now is just getting further and further from the user experience that patients use in every aspect of their lives. I just had my groceries delivered while we had, while we started our podcast interview from Instacart because I pressed a button. And as we start to serve a patient population that has never picked up a phone to call someone for almost any reason, we just get further and further from how we're able to acquire them. And someone else will probably do that better. And I venture that that will be a technologist that if they don't do it at first, will eventually have a lot of VC money behind them. But we're seeing, I mean, with some of the larger players we work with, we are seeing that approach being taken. And I think one of the really exciting things we get to see is the evolution of that patient journey and the patient experience. And I think there has been an awful lot of thought put into patient acquisition and patient journey, patient interaction and even from a UI perspective, what is this patient going to feel prior to being seen and during the course of care? And how can we reach them in a way that is familiar to them, which is their phone? And, you know, one of, like I said, one of the the bigger players we work with has spent a lot of time and money throwing their efforts at this. And I think anyone who's going to be a patient there is going to see how differently they do things. And I, this is becoming more and more of a common thread though. And there are other practices we've seen who are also putting an awful lot of focus on that. And that's one of the tools we're bringing to the table. Now we're not doing it in the method you're describing as sort of a universal platform for all practices to interact in as a patient, but on a practice by practice level, we are providing some of those features. And of course, patient experience, cell phone app, integrating with our other partners out there like Engaged MD to help in that patient's movement into the decision making process and through that decision making process in an informed fashion. And you should definitely talk to the guys over there and hear about all the cool things that they're bringing to the table to support the practices as well. This is a freaking cool conversation. I could have this for three hours. Nicole, which I do right. want to conclude, we hit on some really good topics, which is always being hungry, I think, as the solution to not being insufficient over time. And that being the means to which one survives, thrives, adapts to, benefits from this massive technological change, which we're only in the freaking beginning of. Like if this is the printing press, yep. we, we just had Gutenberg release the first one. I mean, we are so in the infancy when you think about how much things are going to change in 20 or 30 years. How would you like to conclude? I think I want to talk about um, the bigger piece as far as technology goes with EMRs and what we call the Tower of Babel, which is we have all of these systems out here, both in fertility and in the, med- the word of, world of medical EMRs in general. And how do we make things better for patients when they're seeing providers everywhere? You know, even within our small artisan network, let's say five months ago, before a lot of the wonderful things that have come to pass happen, we had patients who had gone to multiple practices using artisan in our small user base already. 
And it's how do we begin? And that's just in our universe. What about the other fertility EMRs? What about their OBGYNs? What about the urologists? And then what about, you know, everything that comes next? How do we overcome all of these technologies that don't talk to one another? How do we find that common language that we can all begin to speak to better support these practices and patients as a whole? And I think for me and for our company, this is something we've talked about. We definitely don't have a solution today, but I think that as an industry, we need to begin to think how to work collaboratively, which is such an emotional hurdle, I think, for most people in this space for the betterment of our industry as a whole and for the patient experience, which is why we all show up to work every day is for the patients. And I think that's, that's gotta be the goal we all continue to work for, which is how do we make this better for the patients? Half of that, I think was the episode we were going to have. Another half is an entirely new episode. I love the episode that we did have because that conversation was just so authentic and can help so many people when they adopt it. Nicole Kazanowicz, thank you for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you, Griffin. This was really fun, and I, I appreciate you being so generous with us. So thank you. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.